honesty time. Uh, this is probably going to be a relatively short episode. I only really have one big point to make, two technically, but both of them. Well, let's just say that I had those points to make before I even rewatched the episode, and then I rewatched it and I was like, yeah. And I got a few nuances to it. So I'm going to kind of save those for last. But everything other than my two big points is just little tidbits. So I hope you enjoy the Arshane Gaia's, excuse me, the Lore Runner's Tidbits Hour. As we go through this. Still getting used to the new name. Um, first of all, let's talk about how awesome Tony Todd is. For those of you who don't know, Tony Todd plays the Alpha Herogen in this episode. He also played Kurg? Worf's brother over on TNG. And he's also played uh, Jake Sisko on Deep Space Nine in one episode. Not young Jake Sisko, old Jake Sisko. I don't want to say too much for fear of spoiling. But yeah, Tony Todd's a really awesome actor. He's always done some good stuff. He really helps sell the Herogen. And this is honestly our first real look at the Herogen. We peeked at them back in Message in a Bottle. We had like eight minutes of them back in Hunters. This is the first episode where it's finally like, okay, this is a Herogen episode. We've built them up. Here they are. That's some good stuff. And I think they did a good job of that overall. Um, I like the opening shot of this episode of a clearly Undine ship being chased by a clearly Herogen ship. With that one image, already we know, oh crap, you know, that, that's a lot of info dump with a simple image, with a simple graphic. We know who the Undine are, or Species A472 if you prefer, and we know that that's a bad thing, that they're there. So the first reaction I had, as I recall back in the day, was, oh crap, you know, <laughs> what are they doing here, and why are they being chased to Herogen? No, it, it, captures, it captures, captures your interest almost immediately. Um, I like the scene where the doctor is trying to practice social ni niceties with Seven because the way he talks about it, it's actually more of a him scene than a her scene. It reminds us that the doctor in the early days was not just, can not just, you know, he wasn't the doctor yet. He was still the EMH and he was still developing what would eventually become his personality. And he was a lot rougher around the edges. I also find it interesting because so many human beings learn social niceties through growing up. We have years upon years to learn. I've often said that, that we as kids learn more in recess than we do in the classroom. Because at recess, it's all about social interaction. It's all about learning how to interact with other people. And, 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 and I do something which makes you do something, which makes me react in a way, which makes me do something else, which makes you do something else. We bounce off of each other. It's the exact opposite of stagnation in terms of development, and that's how human beings develop, is through interaction with other human beings, right? I love that. I've always loved social interaction. If I can segue for just a moment, my little niece, uh, who I watch full-time right now, um, I take her out as frequently as I can, because there's a school over there and a school over there, and I try to take her outside, not, not just to get her some air and some exercise and some sunlight, but also so she can interact with the other kids. And one time, uh, this is a specific instance, this just happened last week, she was out there and there was another little girl there, and the little girl was waiting with her, uh, her mother, and watching those two interact, it was like watching adults interact, but much more obvious. I've often said that I'm really good at reading people. So it's like, you know, they're like, oh, God, this is someone I'm interested in interacting with. Because, I mean, you're my size, which means which means I can talk with you. But I don't know what to say, and I don't want to overstep. So they're both sitting there, and they're both, like, looking at each other, and then they look down. Because they don't know what to do. They don't know what to so they look down. And it's so obvious. It was incredibly adorable. And she looks up, and finally, both of them start talking at the same exact moment, realize the other is talking, and immediately stop. It's like, oh. <laughs> it was adorable. 
But my reason for bringing this up is the doctor never had that. The doctor had, well, the doctor's four years old, let's remind ourselves here, or four and a half, or however long it is. Arguably less than that, thanks to the events of Swarm, or The Swarm, excuse me. So the doctor actually sitting in his in his sick bay, just practicing with, with a hollow pad, or, or a data pad, just going, okay, how are you doing? Practicing, and, and practicing with Kess, as he mentioned, is something I could fully see him doing, because he never got to do that for real. He's already got the, the brain power of an adult and the ability to comprehend that, but he has nothing as far as experience to come. So I really like that. And it's a perfectly logical step for him to then try to pass on that kind of teaching to Seven to try and teach her how to have social uh, interaction and social graces. This will become something of a, a future side plot that will then never stop being a side plot. If I could say one thing as an aside really quick, I'll talk about this more later, but suffice it to say, I think this is a great Seven episode because it's a very logical part of her character development and is basically, from from when she was introduced in Scorpion Part 2 to now, has basically been, when with a couple of hiccups, one smooth arc. It's all been very natural, very progressing. It's been taking its time. This is, what, the 14th episode? I, I don't know. I don't have my number off the top of my head, but, you know, it's been a nice, long, slow progression until she has actually become... Uh, the character she is now, this you know, as I keep calling her Seven rather than Seven of Nine, right? Unless I've been mis mixing up because Lord knows I'm really tired right now. But excuse me. Um, but the point is, we've reached this point in time naturally, and then somewhere later on, that it's basically going to be abandoned completely. She's going to reach a certain point of character development, and then she's going to stall and never move on from this point for the entire rest of the franchise. I, I'm going to try and point it out when we get there because I don't know the exact episode now. But with analysis mode on, I'm going to probably notice it and be like, ah, pff, this, this is where she hits the plateau. And that bugs me because, what the hell, guys? Moving on. So, one thing I like, I forget where it happened. What was that? Was that a book? Or was that an episode? There's something I read, and this is so vague that you guys are probably going to just laugh at me. If anybody knows what I'm talking about, feel free to share. Um, where someone basically challenged the authority of someone else on the bridge, uh, just like that, you know, completely countermanded them, and they were pulled off and told, no, that's completely unacceptable. I know that sounds really vague. I can picture the scene. I can picture the dialogue. I can't figure out who the people were, so I can figure out what it was from. Um... But I like that scene because that's very appropriate. As weird as it sounds, command structure is absolutely required on the bridge of a ship. This is true in real life in addition to in starships, if I can be blunt. You need everyone to be working like that on the bridge of a ship, right? So suddenly having someone come up and start questioning orders in the middle of a crisis situation, or indeed in general, is just going to interrupt that and possibly lead to really bad things happening, right? That's why it's not tolerated. I mention this to give some perspective, because Seven challenges Janeway and actually calls her out and says, no, you're doing the wrong thing on her bridge. But Janeway actually goes out of her way to tolerate that. You could see in her expression, Mulgrew does a great job, she's like, mm, and she reins herself in because it's Seven, because she's still trying to reach out to Seven. That'll be important later. And so she reaches out to Seven and explains herself. This is something we're doing, blah, 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 it's my call to make, yada, 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 let's do it. And... Well, I'll, I'll get more on that in a minute. 
I also like how Seven's initial reaction to the Undine is more emotional than tactical. I'll be talking about the difference between emotional and tactical in a bit as well. That's one of the two points I wanted to make. But I like that because it again shows that Seven is becoming more and more of a person, her person, her own person, rather than just being an unthinking drone. Naturally, the lo logistics of there's an Undine on my ship is really horrible, but there's no denying that she has an emotional response initially to this thing, and she just wants to kill it because it's horrible, right? So, yeah, okay, let's, uh, let's lead up to a couple things here. Let's talk about the, the difference between... This, this lead-up is great, okay? First, Janeway takes a dangerous risk with regards to the Herosian ship. She does so, and in the process of doing so, gains a fairly large amount of information about her enemy, the Herosian, and the people, and overall is better for the entire endeavor. And she explains it as such to Seven, who is present at the debriefing. Seven then acknowledges that, yes, your gamble worked this time. Now, that may sound like she's being haughty, but I think the point that is made here is that Seven now acknowledges the validity of such a strategy of a gamble. It is a risk, but the rewards are something that can be significant. This comes up later on, and this is surprisingly well-constructed. Props to Braga, Bronn and Braga, Brandon Braga excuse me, for writing this, later on, she's saying, I want to stun you know, the, the, the Undine rather than kill it instantly. And Seven says, well, that will take time. And Janeway explains, I want to know if there's more. You know, I want to know more. I need to interrogate it. Seven then complies instantly because it's the same thing. This is a gamble. This is a risk. But we may gain more information that may be incredibly valuable. And as Seven would know, and anybody with a brain would know, if this is one lone Undine, fine. But what if there's more? What if there's a fleet? What if this is a new invasion, as they keep being afraid of? So this is a very valid situation to take that risk again. Then Janeway, later on, tries to spare the Undine at the risk of her own crew and ship, actively endangering her, her crew and, and shipmates in order to try and show mercy and compassion to the Undine. At that point, that's where it crosses the line. It feels like a natural progression, because Seven is basically on board with Janeway up until that point, up until it becomes a threat to the ship. I mean, if you remember, there's this great confrontation scene between Janeway and Seven in her room, and Janeway orders her to do it, and Seven says, no. I will not willfully participate in my destruction and the destruction of this ship. And I note how she points out the ship as well. I like that because it shows in her own small Borgy way, I shouldn't even say Borgy way, in her own way, her own way, Seven has started to actually care about this ship and possibly even his crewmates. And so she does not want to see them destroyed any more than, you know, she wants herself to be destroyed. The fact that she placed herself and them at equal priority actually says a lot from her perspective. Let's talk about cold calculus, because this, this has to do with this. The dilemma here is, what do you do with the Undine? I like the setup of this, because it's one of those things where, on the surface, it's like, it's one of two things, and which is hilarious, but I'll get into this in a moment. Um, it's either a no-duh, I mean, of course, sparing it is going to work out, because that's how Star Trek is, right? You spare the enemy, and then things work out great, right? Yeah. It's a very Star Trek-y thing to do. On the other side of the thing, it's a no-duh, because it's a frickin' Undine, and letting it go is just going to make things everything worse. I mean, they're, they're one of the most evil species that's ever been introduced in the entire franchise. I like that both perspectives are equally valid. And when you really analyze it, well, let's just toss a few what-ifs at you. 
what if she kills the Undine, and then the others make their way here looking for it? A search party happens, or they, they follow the trail here, and they find out that Voyager was involved in this. And things get bad as a result of that. The Undine decide to go ahead and renew their war, not just against the, 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 the galaxy in general, but against Voyager in particular. Voyager, who is not looking for a fight from the Undine, is caught by surprise by an Undine attack. Things go badly, and that's the end of the galaxy. Right? What if they decide to get the Undine back to its own to, to fluidic space? And the Undine goes back, and it says, I've been saved by the Voyager crew. Ah, clearly they have decided to negotiate some kind of you know, truce with us. We will leave them be, blah, 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 right? What if they let the Undine go back to fluidic space, and they say, what kind of weak, pathetic creatures would dare to do something so, so pathetic? Creatures that disgustingly small do not deserve to continue to exist. Or they may even be insulted to have to be helped by something so beneath them. Keep in mind this is a species that genocided, we don't even know how much of space, completely extinguished all life that isn't them in their particular place, the fluidic space, right? We don't know how big it is, so I'm hesitant to use the word like galaxy. The point is, there is no right answer here. Nobody knows the end game variables. All you have is what is in front of you. Do you use compassion and show that to someone? Or do you try and do a situation where you accept the cold calculus of a situation and, based on doing so, take the best gamble? You see how that kind of ties back into the story thread here. Hi, sis. Oh, I've lost my sis. Wait, she's back. Yeah, she's back. Um, yes, I am recording. Uh, don't worry, I'm almost done. Hi. Mm. You want to get dinner? Mm. Okay. You smell odd. Like, not bad, just odd. Anyway, so... Ah! <laughs> the, uh, the reason this is so great, though... Ah, stop it! <laughs> the reason this is so great... Don't! You have to cut that part out! You can't go calling a girl odd-smelling. I do it all the time. You're just a person, not a female. There's a difference. You can't go calling your sister odd-smelling. It's not nice. Okay. The reason this is so fascinating is because the fact that Dilemma is so well-designed that neither side is correct makes it so that it's completely up to the viewer to decide who is actually correct in their decision. Even at the end, we're still not 100% sure who, who is correct there. Voyager might have been able to outmaneuver the Herogen or pull some quantum out of their butts and do something with it. Uh, or the Undine might have been some kind of vindictive in person or may might have been able to come out and help. Or who knows? We don't actually know the variables. But the relevant point here is the difference between the human element and the cold calculus. Let me explain what cold calculus is, okay? I was asked to talk about this uh, some time ago, and they mentioned uh, another episode, which we're not actually at yet, but I actually feel like this is a really good episode to talk about cold calculus, so forgive me. Let's say there's a guy with a gun. Now, let's be generous and say that it's a, a 10, 10 ammo round, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, a piece of crap, you know, a Glock or something like that, right? But he's got a gun. Now, there are like 20 of us, 20 people who are just normal people, right? Now, it is no surprise why that one guy with his one gun with his 10 bullets can hold us at bay. We don't want to be hurt or killed, right? But that's the human element. That is the emotional element. That is the compassionate element. That is the 
personal perspective. That is not the cold calculus. The cold calculus says we should rush that guy as soon as possible because we will win. Almost guaranteed. It is very unlikely he will get off all 10 shots before we get to him. We will take losses. Again, almost guaranteed. Yet at the same time, the cold calculus says it will be a victory for our side, for our situation, if we make that active. That is why it is called cold calculus. Because it takes the human element out of the equation. It looks at the numbers, looks at the statistics, looks at the setting, looks at the situation. How will this circumstance play out? That's what cold calculus is in a nutshell. It's not all about ordering people to their deaths for, for the possibility of a gain, like happened in Babylon 5 or Mass Effect 3, no. It's about ignoring the fact that those are people. Seven's perspective of getting rid of Undine is without question an example of cold calculus. Janeway's decision to try and help the Undine is without question an example of the exact opposite, the human element. Compassion, as she herself says. Again, I'm not saying either one is correct. Because we don't know, and we never will. Because... And, and this is the thing that I feel is especially interesting. In the moment, and I've talked about the moment many, many times, in the moment, Seven took the action she felt was best available to her. And she did it within a matter of seconds. Don't forget, she was going down there to follow orders, and then things went to hell, and she had a few seconds to decide, and she chose cold calculus. Get rid of the thing. Kill it. Kill it so that we may live. Again, not saying it's right or wrong. But the thing that really gets interesting is the final coda scene where she and Janeway confront each other. At first, Janeway comes to her, and her tone and her posture all indicate the same thing. Regret. I have a theory on Janeway uh, that I will continue to share as her arc continues to open up. It'll really start going in Season 5. That Janeway is basically, and I'll summarize it in one word, broken. That she is not risen to the occasion of being out here in the Delta Quadrant and by herself, but that it has been bearing her down to the point where she's having trouble functioning. She's having trouble maintaining objectivity. She wanted to do this good act so badly that she was willing to risk her crew to do so, blindly trying to maintain what she believes a Starfleet captain should do, doing the right thing, adherence to that kind of ideals and altruism, right? So she comes down on Seven, and you could see in her perspective, in Mulgrew, excuse me, in, in Janeway's perspective, that she feels bad about having to do this, but she has to punish Seven. She doesn't want to, but she has to. She has to maintain discipline, and in her opinion, Seven crossed the line by not believing in her, by not believing in Janeway, not humanity, not individuality, Janeway. And that hurt her. And then she leaves, and then Seven calls her out on it. This is the part I like. Seven gives a wonderful, amazing speech about how you are afraid of my individuality. You want me to be more like you, not more like me. And Janeway can only say, as you were. She cannot respond to that properly. But her tone is so cold that I think Seven hit a nerve there. I also like the fact that the wedge remains between these two characters after this. Brennan Brog is really good about long-term character development. It's a shame he was working on Voyager. Can you imagine the, the DS9 we would have had if Braga had been over on DS9? And I know people are like, oh, that would have been terrible, but I think that would have been great. I'll talk more about Brennan Braga in future episodes, but suffice it to say, the man has some genuine talent. He's really good at character movement, and he's really good at long-term consequences. He is the man who brought Seven to the show, after all. But again, I'll talk about that more later. Suffice it to say, that wedge is put in between them because Seven's right. 
Janeway looks at Seven and sees Annika Hansen. Janeway wants Annika Hansen, and this will come up in future episodes as well. Seven wants to be Seven. That's why I try to be so hard about calling her that rather than either of her previous names. She doesn't want to be either of her previous lives. She wants to be herself. And the fact that she is starting to have such opinions, have such perspectives, start to assert her own individuality, and that she is knocked down for it, bothers her. And as well it should. Interesting food for thought. Um, this is also, as I mentioned, a beautiful continuation of her character arc. Why? This is the first real negative Seven has encountered. She has encountered negatives, but they've all been effectively bumps in the road up until this point. This is the first time she has gone up against someone she genuinely cares about, Janeway, and genuinely disagreed with him about a real dilemma. No right or wrong, right? No clear right or wrong. And now she is experiencing what it's like to be an individual. Because you don't know, things don't always work out. Things aren't always, you know, oh, we'll make it up for it, or oh, I'm sorry, or oh, let's find a common ground. Sometimes you just disagree. Sometimes you just hurt each other. You know? I do have one final note to add. Cisco had to do a great evil in his own mind in order to prevent a worse evil in what many people consider to be the best episode of DS9, In the Pale Moonlight. But the key point is that Cisco clearly regretted that. He hated the fact that he would have to live with that decision. And he would have to live with it. His final lines really helped that. Seven made a rather similar choice, all things considered. I will sacrifice this life so the lives of the people I care about are saved. The interesting difference is Seven showed no real regret over that decision. I'm not saying she didn't regret it. I'm just saying she showed no regret over it. If anything, though, I feel like Seven does actually feel bad about the fact that she completely bypassed Janeway in the matter. That she was not able to convince Janeway of the rightness of her perspective, for that matter. I mention this because this will again come up in the killing game. I've, remember back in Hunters, I mentioned to keep that in the back of your mind. There's another little point to keep in the back of your mind for when we get to the killing game. I'll talk about it when we get there, I swear. But first, we're going to go and do a little bit of a sideways turn in this whole uh, Herogen arc and talk about something that has nothing to do with anything. Retrospect. So, see you next time, guys. You made me into an individual. You encouraged me to stop thinking like a member of the collective, to cultivate my independence and my humanity. But when I try to assert that independence, I am punished. Individuality has its limits, especially on a starship where there's a command structure. I believe that you are punishing me because I do not think the way that you do. Because I am not becoming more like you. Claim to respect my individuality. But in fact, you are frightened by it. As you were. <laughs>